welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. I'm not sure her political affiliation, but I vote Martha Henry for whatever office she runs for. She's just got my vote, right? That exuberance, that love for the Lord, uh, the love for people, the love for her community. You know, just like Martha greets us at Carmel Press, Paul is greeting the church at Ephesus with uh, a praise for God, an exuberance for God's goodness, a gratitude for God's people. Now, to remind you, Paul's letter was written to the church, uh, likely while he was under house arrest in Rome. And to also remind you, Paul was a converted Jewish Pharisee who previously persecuted the Christians. Now he's its lead evangelist, and particularly the evangelist to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, as we call them, who made up probably the majority, if not all, the church in Ephesus. Now, this first half of the letter focuses on this beautifully, theologically crafted treatise from Paul. It's gorgeous. It talks about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and then the mystery of our amazing inheritance because of Jesus Christ. And then that second half focuses that what is our response because of this reality. And so chapters one through three, in a sense, is what we call orthodoxy or right thinking. And then the second half of Paul's letter, I'm calling chapters four through six, orthopraxy or right living. It's a reality of what it means to live in response to God's glory and God's goodness. And so what we're going to do today is first, we're going to take a look at the context of this letter for a bit. Secondly, we'll consider Paul's greeting of grace and peace. Thirdly, we're going to see the impact of being chosen. And then lastly, we're going to consider what Christ, the beloved, has done for us. We've got a lot in store this morning. But, but would you please join me in one more prayer? This comes from Dr. Martin Luther King. I think it's appropriate for today. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Oh, thou eternal God out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being, we humbly confess that we have not loved thee with our hearts, our souls, and minds, and we have not loved our neighbors as Christ loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by Christ. We often give in in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go the first mile, but dare not travel the second. We forgive, but dare not forget. And so as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against thee. But thou, O God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us what we could have been, but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know thy will. Give us the courage to do thy will. Give us the devotion to love thy will. In the name of the Spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What a prayer. May that be our prayer today. As we take a look at verse 1, chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, for many of these Uh, Bible uh, versions, it says the second line, to the saints who are in Ephesus. 
Now, the word to the saints is simply a reference to believers. There is no hierarchy of super Christians, right? There's St. Tim here and St. Dorothy's here. And then we got St. Rick up here, right? It's, it's, there's no hierarchy. It's just to the saints. We're all one in Christ Jesus, to the saints. There's no super Christians. Now, another note is that the earliest manuscripts of Paul's letter to the Ephesians do not contain that little phrase, at Ephesus. So what happened? Did I add that in or the printers of our Bibles add that in? Well, Paul's original letter that he had transcribed under house arrest in Rome likely had that phrase when it was received by the church in Ephesus. Now, I believe that Paul likely intended this letter to not only reside at that church in Ephesus, but to be circulated around to a broader audience and therefore be called an encyclical level. That's a fancy word, meaning they're going to pass it around. Now, Paul, what he does in the letter does not address specific people in Ephesus or problems in Ephesus like his other letters always do. What does this mean? So apparently, Paul probably wanted a broader audience to receive the letter. And so when copies were being made of this letter, because there were no copy machines back then, it was an arduous process and even an expensive process, it most likely later scribes dropped at Ephesus because they knew it was going to be going to the church in Thessalonica or maybe the church in Rome, wherever it might be. That meant that each church would not be hindered by seeing another name on the top of the letter. Now, if we got a letter here at Carmel Press, and it said, to the dear saints, brothers and sisters at First Baptist, already we'd start tuning out, right? We'd be like, oh, that's not for us. And so what we believe happened is that in, in order for this to get passed around, they drop that line so that everyone can feel the sense of Paul's original intention was a word for all of us in the church. Now, each month in my mailbox at home, I get a magazine that I didn't order, but it's for luxury cars. It's a sign from the Lord. Because <laughs> I sold my 2008 Prius and I upgraded to my wife's 2005 Mitsubishi. It's a sign, I'm telling you. I could do ministry much better in that Lexus, right? Or perhaps it's a midlife crisis, right, that's addressing me. And as I go in to show my wife the obvious, obvious sign of the Lord, and then she points out, your name's not even on it. It says Mike. My name could be Mike, right? No Lexus for me. Now, Paul's letter was not only for the saints in Ephesus, but meant for the saints in Asia Minor, but also for the saints beyond in Rome and maybe even to Spain for the saints in Hong Kong and the saints in Johannesburg and the saints in downtown LA and maybe even for the saints in Carmel by the sea. Right? By the power of the Holy Spirit, may this word be for us today that we might pray that God reveal your word to us by your Holy Spirit, which is not bound by space nor bound by time. Speak to me, Lord. Convict me. Comfort me. Lead me by your word right now, we ask our prayer. Now, as we go to verse 2, 
Paul says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now, this is a very popular and common term that Paul uses. We see at least evidence. 13 of his writings includes grace and peace. Six of his letters specifically use the same formula, grace and peace to you. But here's the thing. Let's not allow the familiarity of Paul's phrase that we just pass it over, right? Don't we always just kind of pass it over? Grace and peace to you. Okay, let's get to the meat. Well, there's meat in here too. What appears to be a simple introductory greeting is actually very rich. The word grace, some of you might know from previous sermons and all your wonderful note-taking. Charis is the Greek word for grace, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. Grace, that would have been familiar to Paul's Gentile audience. We think these non-Jews likely reading this letter. That was a familiar greeting, a form of that in that culture. And then peace, of course, is shalom. God's peace would have been known to the Jewish hearers, for sure. So what Paul does, he combines the two to forge his own unique greeting that is intended for all believers, whether Gentile or Jew, those who come from both backgrounds, forming one united by diverse body of Christ, the church, as Paul's letter gets circulated around. Grace and peace is the greeting. Secondly, Paul's use of grace and peace, it echoes the elements of this wonderfully well-used and known blessing from Aaron, number six, verses 24 through 26 originally spoken over Israel and recited at many churches throughout the world today. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Does it sound familiar? Paul's doing that as well. Thirdly, the thing to note about this word of grace and peace is that this grace and peace is not coming from Paul, but from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a greeting from the Lord to you. Grace and peace. This is a powerful word of God. You see, God himself made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus is proclaiming his grace that has been bestowed to those hearers and that grace has been gifted to those who have received him. It never gets old to Paul to remind his people that God is speaking a word of grace to you. It never gets old. This is a powerful affirmation, a reminder from God himself of grace and peace that only can come from God, only can come by being gifted by God and being received from God, because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you, Christians. Don't forget how you entered into the family, and don't forget what keeps you secure. Grace and peace. Christians, the Lord himself is reminding you of this. Do you need some grace to be reminded of what you live in, the grace of God? Do you need peace for today's challenges and travails. Man, Paul's just getting started. He's saying, Christians, grace and peace to you. And to us, to us who are hearing and listening who might be non-Christians, aren't yet followers of the Lord, grace and peace awaits you 
ultimate grace and peace as you surrender to the Lord Jesus, who's offering himself in place of your worry, in place of your doubt, in place of your insecurity, in place of your restlessness, God offers grace and peace. And then we take a look at verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Did you notice the threefold usage of blessing? <laughs> Paul's exploding with this word in the Greek. It's eulogetos. It looks like the word eulogy. In fact, it means this exuberant adulation of God. It means to bless or to praise. And two weeks ago, I actually, I mentioned and encouraged you to not live for your resume, but to live for your eulogy. Live now with the end in mind. You remember that eulogy is when people will say nice things about you, right? We hope that they'll say nice things with the eulogy. That's what the word means. Dr. Martin Luther King said at his funeral, don't waste time talking about his awards. He hopes that people will talk about how he simply loved others. Paul is eulogizing God in a sense. He's praising God for his worthiness. The eulogetos is praising God. That's what he's doing. And I want you to notice how Paul makes the flow go from the blessed Father God and then the Lord Jesus Christ that results in believers being blessed with every spiritual blessing from Father to Son to us. See, Paul is about to give us a glimpse into the mystery of the immensity of our blessedness that comes from the heavenly realms, this reality that we're chosen Take a look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. It says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, we're going to tackle predestination, which is in verse 5, in a couple more weeks. But today we're going to focus on the important aspect of this truth that we are chosen in verse 4. They're obviously very connected, but I'm going to tackle the aspect of us being chosen. And in fact, before the foundation of the world were chosen, that God had chosen me. Unbelievable. Paul's saying that before I was ever born, God had his eyes on me. Now, in elementary school, I don't remember, we had this thing called recess. Have they gotten rid of recess now? It seems like they're getting rid of all the fun stuff. But back when I grew up, there was a thing called recess. And so we'd go out on recess after class, and we'd get in as much playtime as we could. I'd go to the basketball court, because obviously God built me for basketball. And so on the courts, they'd be splitting up the teams, and eventually my name would be called, and I would be so proud of myself, because I was chosen to be on the team. And I looked around, and I was the last one. I was the last choice for them on the team. That was my experience on the basketball court as a kid, and in many aspects of life growing up as a kid. I was chosen last. Maybe some of you can experience that same memory yourself. I wasn't chosen a lot. 
And what happened, I struggled with that idea of not being chosen, not being wanted, or maybe not being needed. Oh, but eventually God had his way. And I came across this idea in Psalm 139, and there was this man named David, who I believe wrote that psalm, and he said something about how before he was even born, and while even in the womb, there was a love of God. That while even in the womb, God was knitting together David. And I started to think, maybe that's true of me. Maybe it's not just for David. Maybe God wanted me to read that so I would believe that. that while in the womb, God had his eyes on me. God was loving me already. That he was already looking upon me with love, and I just didn't know it. And in verse 4, Paul talks about he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Now, I think Paul is not highlighting that they need to work harder. He's not saying they need to attain this on their own, their holiness or blamelessness, but rather they have been gifted this status. How? Well, because of the grace, because of the peace that only can come from the Lord Jesus now you're holy and blameless. He's not telling him to work harder. He's telling him to rest better. <laughs> rest in that grace and that peace that comes from Christ, the beloved himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, this is what Christ has done. You were bought with a price. This is costly grace, not cheap grace. See, God chose you. And then Jesus paid the price for you because you and I couldn't pay it. See, that demonstrates his great love for you. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death we should have died. We were bought at a price, costly grace. And he did this. Why? Take a look at verse 4. In love. Why? In love. Can you get a glimpse of the love of God poured out to you? He has purchased your freedom and he set you free. In verse 5, it, Paul keeps going. He talks about us being predestined for adoption to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will. Now, I get the question sometimes, why did God, through Paul, say sons and not daughters? Or why doesn't he just say children? Is Paul a male chauvinist? I would say no. This is important because in this culture, Paul is speaking to the culture and to the laws of the culture. Because in that time, and in fact in many countries today, it is only the son who has the full rights of the inheritance from the father. And so what Paul is saying is, you believers in Christ, men and women, you are heirs of the Father, men and women. You get the full rights as sons, full heirs. How much money does God the Father have? How much resources does he have? How much goodness and love does he have? Endless sons and daughters, men and women, boys and girls, you are the heirs of the king. They are granted the full rights. 
Why did he do this? Well, verse 5 makes it clear in accordance, in accordance with his good pleasure. God didn't choose you as heirs begrudgingly. He did it with pleasure. He loved doing it. The thought of you and of me in his forever family for eternity must have brought him great pleasure. He didn't do it begrudgingly. You know, when Paul met Christ for the first time on that road to Damascus in his blazingly bright light from heaven, Acts, the, the book reports, we see that Paul experiences the blessing of grace, that Paul himself was chosen. Well, how do we know it? Well, because Jesus says Paul was chosen. In fact, he, he says that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. That's from Acts 9.15. How do we know Paul was chosen by Christ? Because Jesus says it. And what Paul is saying, just the same way I was chosen by Christ, so you believers are chosen. Amazing. Paul's own sense of being chosen now spills over to all who confess that Jesus is Lord. I can imagine Paul's listeners might have doubted, might have questioned that they were chosen because they understand why Paul could be chosen, but because you're an apostle, you're an evangelist. And he says, oh, you don't, you don't maybe know enough details about my past. God still chose me. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, men and women and boys and girls, you also can know and be secure in your chosenness because of Christ. Paul says emphatically that God's blessing is poured out to all whom God has chosen and that this was before the foundation of the world. So that means that you have been blessed, you have been chosen, you have been loved, you're predestined before you did anything. It's a radical idea. You see, that's good news for all of us who are in Christ because it means that it was never your abilities that got you saved. It was never your abilities that brought you into God's forever family. And that means it's not your abilities that are required to keep you in God's family. It was never the reason you got in. It'll never be the reason that you'll get kicked out. Grace and peace. You were bought at a price. You cannot undo what Christ has done. And he says, for all who have confessed Jesus is Lord, Paul is saying, you've been chosen. You've been blessed. We can't depend on our own works and efforts. It never is the reason we got in. It'll never be a reason that we will be kicked out. We are secure in the grip of God's grace. Verse 6, as we wrap up this little section today. Why did God do all this? Well, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, what Paul does, he repeats three times in this chapter this idea of the praise of his glorious grace. He keeps saying it again and again. Because as a Christian, you are blessed with grace by the beloved, Paul says here. And remind you that the Father God spoke to God the Son, Jesus, 
Before he ever performed a miracle or preached a sermon, he said this, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I love reminding us of that verse. Before Jesus planted a church or preached a sermon or did a miracle, the father says, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew he was loved, not based on anything he did, but simply because who he was, God's son. And now that Jesus, the beloved, is pouring out his grace to you, is what verse 6 says, pouring out his own grace to you, that you might know this same love that is not based on your performance either. It's a love that cannot be earned. It's a love that cannot be lost. Why is Paul putting this all together? Why is he using that word beloved for Jesus? Oh, because he wants us to know the saints in Ephesus and the saints in Como by the sea. You are blessed with grace by the beloved. It's unattainable. It must be gifted. It's unearnable. It must be received. Don't forget it. Don't forget it and let that praise overflow in your heart, out of your mouth, and then through your hands and feet as a response. Don't forget you've been blessed with grace by the beloved. A couple years ago, Johnny Erickson Tata interviewed uh, a friend of ours named Catherine Wolf for Sanctity of Life Sunday. I want you to take a look at this interview as we wrap up our time. I am with my very good friend, Catherine Wolf, and you have never met a person who has such a zeal and a zest for life as she has. Over 10 years ago, Catherine suffered a massive stroke shortly after her first baby was born, and she has so much to say about the preciousness of life. Catherine, I look at you now, and when I consider that um, after your stroke, you uh, were rushed to the hospital, a major 16-hour surgery, a long period of rehab, surely you got discouraged. Right. What, what was it that got you through? What, what helped? Oh, gosh, so many things, but what stands out in my mind was deeper than all the lies I began to believe about God abandoning me, about this being some sort of horrific mistake, that I'm a mistake, that I'm not made for this world anymore. Um, even deeper than all those lies was a truth that God doesn't make mistakes, that God's plan somehow included this, that God chose me for this and saw me worthy to steward and champion this unique situation for the rest of my life. And that I had the opportunity to live well, to suffer well within these bodily constraints. And God really ignited and awakened in my mind this notion that that I, I was really like chosen by him is the only words I know how to talk about it selected by God himself for something very special and it transformed everything because I no longer felt forgotten and abandoned but like God handpicked me he saw me fit for this, and that was really exhilarating. Well, Catherine, before your stroke, you were active, you were healthy, you were running, you were doing all kinds of stuff. And then after your stroke, 
it's like a whole different life. For sure. So, so for you, what does it mean? Oh gosh. Pro-life is about the unborn and the born. It's life in the womb and out of the womb because it's all worth championing because God made it. Mm. It's so beautiful to think my life before I was born and after has tremendous plan and purpose. It didn't start one and end somewhere. Or I, I've just been given this new chance at life that is in a wheelchair. And that is weird. You get that. It's hard to do life in a wheelchair, but it's an amazing life. I feel like our world lies to us and tells us that if it's not you perfectly running on the beach, then you can't enjoy it. Uh, you can though. You can enjoy it. You can enjoy life no matter how limited you are. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Psalm 16:6, 100%. And for me, that's life in a wheelchair. And for you, that's life in a wheelchair. And do you see us crying about it? No, yeah. it's a great life. If you talk to Catherine, you'll know, she'll tell you, she had a lot of tearful days and weeks and months and years. It's okay to cry about it. But what she's saying is when you know the grace and peace, when you know you're chosen, when you know you're secure, life makes sense. You don't have to feel abandoned. She says, knowing I'm chosen transform everything because I no longer felt forgotten and abandoned. If anyone is sitting here today, whether you're a Christian or not, and you have felt forgotten or abandoned, we just want to keep restating God's truth. You're known, you're loved. As you rely on Jesus Christ, you can rest in his grace. The beloved has bestowed grace upon all who believe. And so we implore you, Christians, remember what you believe. And we implore you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus to start believing, to confess, to make your home with Jesus as he makes his home with you. You know, Tim Keller says the great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God. It's not about us, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Oh, what a promise. You could feel forgotten and abandoned if you're 25 years old or 85 years old. You can feel forgotten and abandoned as a little kid on the basketball courts on, as an elementary or midlife uh, trying to figure out your career or in retirement. You can feel lost, abandoned, restless. We all want to know we're loved. We all want to know this peace that Paul is talking about. And so, friends... Let's be reminded, in Christ, we are blessed, we are chosen, we are loved, we're predestined by his grace. Let's remember that. Let's live it and rest in it. Let's pray. Oh God, many of us have various forms of limitations in our life right now. We just want to pause and remember your greatness, your sovereignty, your holiness. Life can seem so uncertain and so challenging at times. 
Lord, may we find the joy that is in you because we know we are chosen and you have a plan for even all of these difficulties. You can redeem them all. We ourselves were bought at a price and you have the power, Lord, by your spirit to redeem and transform even all these limitations that we experience in our lives, the pains, the struggles. Oh Lord, may praise naturally flow from our lips as we consider your goodness and your greatness and your grace bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. We worship you, we love you, we give you our praise. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.